and welcome to another Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello, Steve. How are you? Smashing, Pumpkin. How is the world treating you? The world is treating me marvellously. It's, uh, it's a good age to live in. A wonderful age, I dare say. Two years going strong, the Squiggly Podcast. Yes, happy birthday. What lucky people. Yeah, we're just kind of taking a run-up at the moment, aren't we? We're just sort of stepping back a few paces before we'd really go for it. <laughs> basically, it's all part of our long game. A long, 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 long game. Should we continue with our long game, Ben, and get on with the podcast? If you like. I'm... Uh, go, I'm uh, encouraging this. <laughs> so No, I thought you was going to do the twinkly-winkly doodly-doodly-doo things. I spliced that in later. You're destroying the illusion, Ben. <laughs> What have we got on this month's uh, Squiggly podcast? What indeed, Stephen? What indeed? Well, I believe, if, uh, if these notes are accurate, we'll be talking to Mr. Mikey Please. Looking forward to hearing more from him and his new film. We'll also be uh, chatting a bit more about the British Animation Awards, which between this podcast and the previous one came and went. So we'll talk to a couple of the other winners, including Ainsley Henderson. We got an interview with uh, Vivian Hallis, uh, the daughter of John Hallis and Joy Batchelor, otherwise known as Hallis and Batchelor. All this, and very possibly more. And splice. <laughs> My goodness, so much has happened in the world of animation. Between each episode, it seems like more and more. Well, it kind of feels like things are in a bit of an upswing, or maybe it's just that we're paying more attention to things as they're happening. Now that we have these obligations, Stephen, to report the goings-on of the animation industry to our devoted audience. Yeah. Okay, then. (laughs) That's correct, yeah. I was just sort of demonstrating the kind of the slow nature of, of if people are after fresh news off the Squiggly Animation Podcast, <laughs> it's not the place to come for fresh news. <laughs> you really need to go to the website. Some of this is a mere four weeks old, so... Uh, it has quite, it's been quite a month, hasn't it, Ben, uh, with regards to news and, and especially trailers, and, and it's all going off. It's all going off, but uh, let's start with probably the oldest piece of news, uh, which is the Oscars. We built up the nominees... And then we didn't even, you know, it, it, a month has gone by since the, since the winners was announced. Did you uh, have any particular thoughts on that? Well, I, I'm pretty sure other news outlets managed to cover the Oscar winners. Really? I mean, in, in that respect, I'm not sure we need to worry too much about letting down our, our people. Okay, right. If you refresh my memory as to who the Oscar winners were, I can whip up some thoughts on the fly quick-witted soul though i am okay so the winner for best animated feature was frozen and the winner for best animated short was mr hublo mm. and gravity won uh, best visual effects pretty much everything else didn't it yeah was mr hublo a surprise winner to most people yeah did you see it at annecy I don't believe i did i i remember the feature film selections at annecy being quite heavily criticized well, Mr. Hublot was the short film. It was? It was the short film. Oh, f*** me running. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's old news, Ben. We've, we've done it. Let's move on. <laughs> there was obviously a, a, a far more prestigious and far more British animation uh, awards ceremony. Not that the Oscars is 
dedicated to animation barely this month and that was the british animation awards it was your first one this year ben how did you how did you find it very pleasant it wasn't the experience that i imagine most of the people who were in attendance were having of uh, you know probably being riddled with anxiety about whether or not they're going to win an award so i felt probably more relaxed than i would have been under other circumstances because mm-hmm. you know there are people you root for but at the end of the day you know you don't have that first hand like nerves of oh god am i gonna am i gonna win am i gonna lose but overall seemed convivial very pleasant night i enjoyed it good and yourself Stephen? i yes i had a i had a fantastic evening first in last out king of the nerds you know it was uh, yeah it was great and and you put together a nice video of the evening so if people want to see really what went down as a as an excellent video with uh, a few of the nominees which we interviewed uh, tim o'sullivan from sarah and duck we interviewed the guys from everything i can see from here we interviewed uh, mark newt and gurgly whoosh as well i said his name really fast because i'm still not sure how to pronounce it even though i've met him on many occasions it was sort of an occasion where you're kind of grabbing all the people that uh, you admire and want to talk to and trying to sort of cram as many sort of interactions and interviews in uh, really not a lot of time. But it's a nice little sort of glimpse at some of the standout pieces of work from last year, certainly. And lots of the films that won were also uh, d- 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 you know, highlight standouts, deserved winners, I would say, for the most part. Absolutely. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. Were there any decisions that you disagreed with? That's a very good question. I mean, I, I don't want to say which ones I thought should have won and stuff, but I will. <laughs> yeah, well, you're allowed to have an opinion. Oh, OK. Well, fair enough. I really think that Sarah and Duck should have won above Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig is an excellent production. Kids love it. You know, it's great for um, Ashley Baker Davis. But... Sarah and Duck deserves so much more than it than it currently gets. It's in a very strong category, but it's a lot stronger than people give it credit for. Yeah, when it comes to sort of the accolades, it's been nominated for a lot of stuff that I agree it should have perhaps won for. But there is this kind of new kid on the block element to it, maybe. But I know Peppa Pig is sort of a British institution at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a it's a fine tradition of, of teaching kids to swear, as the Daily Mail informs us. Yes. <laughs> What do you think to that? I think it's quite sensible. I think kids have to learn at some point or other. <laughs> Whether it's Peppa Pig or the Squiggly Podcast, a little f- has got a. Yeah, this is know. a um, this is an article that you're alluding to from from the Daily Mail, which I, I don't recommend you go onto the Daily Mail website. But um, quite the article, uh, basically a mother accusing uh, her uh, uh, Peppa Pig, an episode where did they say rocking? Or something like that, and it, and it sounds like uh, it sounds like f- basically. And let's punch it up, shall we? Kiana Cox from Cardiff regularly started using the f word at the age of two. It's a little bit kind of late, isn't it, to start swearing? I mean, is this a, is this a story about a tragic kind of development of her not being able to swear until the age of two? It's as heartwarming. She finally pulled through, <laughs> thanks to Peppa Pig. It's basically this century's the miracle worker. <laughs> Should we have a listen? Wasn't she once in a pop group? That's right. She played guitar with the Vocking Gazelles. Um, that, that is quite... That sounds nothing like it. It's just a Welsh accent, and she's Welsh herself. Is it sort of traditional to pronounce words that begin with R with a V? 
Yeah. I'm not lending credence to the claims of this dimwit, but <laughs> I could see why maybe she thought there'd be a Daily Mail story in it. Well, uh, I'm sure the money made off of the uh, off of selling her story will be able to purchase a lot more sweary Peppa Pig DVDs. Do you remember where you first heard that word? At school, probably. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought a hissing noise, the sound of sound of pissing, was a swear word. Interesting. <laughs> well, um, we're talking really young. We're talking like. Where were you raised again? In Bradford. Okay, I mean, maybe that's just a defense mechanism. <laughs> like in the wilds of Bradford. Yeah. To sort of fend off attackers. You just hiss at them like in a, it's sort of a feral thing. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a, uh, what they called, assembly, where everyone came into, into school. Uh, and we were singing The Wheels on the Bus or something like that. Or Old MacDonald. And it was something like the tires, uh, yeah, the tires on the bus go hiss, hiss, hiss. And it was and I thought everyone was making the pissing sound. To my tiny little four, five-year-old brain, they might as well have been saying, the wheels on the bus say, because <laughs> <laughs> the reaction to me was like, oh my God, <laughs> what is this filth? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, my, that's the kind of earliest memory I ever get of, uh, of swearing. And then, you know, it's, it's just language at the end of the day, isn't it? It's just a word. <laughs> that is true. What about yourself? When was the first time you heard uh, a swear word? The first time I heard f***ing was in uh, Beetlejuice. And uh, it was just a word I didn't, I hadn't heard before. So I think I had to have repeated it at some point to then be explained, no, you can't say that. But uh, there's a point where um, an angry Beetlejuice kicks over, he's in the model of the cemetery, and he kicks over the fake tree, and he goes, nice f***ing model. And he, <laughs> So a weird moment because he, there's no other real swearing in that film and that's one of those films from when you're a kid that in every other respect is just sort of a kid's film. Yeah. Elsewhere, in the wonderful world of animation when cartoons aren't brainwashing us or, or, or turning our children gay, as is the uh, opinion of... Uh, where did that one come from? This was on uh, SlashFilm.com. It was a pastor in America, surprise, surprise, who said that uh, Frozen... Was turning people gay. How's it managing that then? I don't know. Have you got the story in front of you? Do you want to, do you want to read it out? Yeah, the pastor. Disney's Frozen is turning your kids gay, says pastor. I mean, maybe it's gay in the sense that, you know, it's a Disney film and they walk out with gay abandon. Or had a gay old time. You know, a song in their heart. Job done. That's what the film's all about. <laughs> First one we've given Swanson and taking the hit animated adventure to task for pushing a progressive, pro-gay, pro-bestiality agenda. Interesting. I thought being progressive was good. Yeah, it, it turns out. It turns out that it's not. I mean, I guess if you're still in that sort of antiquated way of thinking of that, you're not allowed to be gay because the magic man in the sky will set you on fire. I would think yeah. that. That's what he subscribed to. <laughs> What's the pro-bestiality agenda? Well, he actually says, doesn't he, on this? He said that uh, Christoph in Frozen has an unnatural relationship with his reindeer, Sven. Because Elsa never ended up with a man, they argue, she's probably a lesbian. Okay, that's how it works. Have you ever come across a film that's turned somebody straight? <laughs> Very good question. Anything with uh, uh, Vin Diesel in it. <laughs> it just turns men straight and women to mush what exactly is the gay agenda because <laughs> I keep hearing about it 
what's their master plan apart from just being kind of fabulous? I I wouldn't know. I'm not subscribed to the gay agenda. It's almost as though they're just making this shit up as they go along. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost as if they've got some kind of other issue that they're trying to <laughs> to stamp down with with something that doesn't really matter. I mean, even if we lived in in some kind of weird world where physics and biology or social things were different and that films could turn people gay so what you know <laughs> i saw a snippet of a documentary the other week and then weirdly the same night saw an episode of american horror story that dealt with the same thing of how in like the 60s i think they tried to cure homosexuality by like negative association therapy like how they rig up Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange so he can't, like, touch boobs anymore without wanting to vomit. Yeah. But they do this with, like, you know, gay people. Like, they make they give them Ipecac or something and show them gay porn so they're vomiting when they should be turned on and somehow that's going to create an irrevocable psychological association when all it did was make them puke and be annoyed. <laughs> I get the whole thing about scientific progression and medical progression is that you kind of have to make ridiculous mistakes to do the whole trial and error of finding the thing that actually does work, but that is kind of alarming because it's sort of a... It's that fresh history of the people who did that kind of thing are still alive today. Yeah. Like they were interviewing one of the doctors in this documentary and he was sort of embarrassed about it, which is good. And uh, there was a guy who was actually... Um, he was in Beetlejuice, actually. He played the interior decorator who, for some reason, lives with the waspish couple in the house. <laughs> he was in The Nightmare Before Christmas as well. But he was gay in real life, and there's this very creepy video of him talking about how he actually went under, like, electroshock therapy to cure his, his gayness by religious zealot idiots in his life. And it's sad business. That's the kind of thing you got to sort of draw a line under, so when you get these sort of idiot pundits looking for things to be upset about in Disney films, it's it's taking so many steps backwards. Mm-hmm. There's a quote here from the guy, his name is Swanson. If I was the devil, what would I do to really foul up an entire social system and do something really, really, really evil to five and six and seven-year-olds in Christian families around America? It's a good question. You know, I mean, one way would be to give a sanctimonious pastor an outlet for voicing his fatuous nonsense. <laughs> you know, that's something I might do in that position. <laughs> Animators do not need to push any kind of conceptual brainwashing agendas, like, with their films. or Especially not, like, spread them out over entire storylines. Because that's the whole beauty of animation. We have control of every moment to, like, 1 25th of a second... So we can just throw shit in Fight Club style, you know? Like, say, drawing a little graffito phallus on the mouse in an American tale. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't the, uh, the actual animator. That <laughs> I have to point that out because it's a previous guest that's been on the podcast that uh, animated that scene. It's, that was done post, post-production. I see. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I didn't... Was that even real at all? Oh, it, it was... Apparently, somebody said that they found it on the DVD, but this could have just been uh-huh. uh, put in when the DVD was being transferred. I have no idea. Which would be sort of a weird thing to do. I mean, maybe, yeah, someone in post put it in on the film the, print. I think if um, I'd be more annoyed that um, if I've just animated this beautiful scene 
and put all the effort into the kind of the motion, the weight, the believability, um, and gone through all the principles and created a beautiful scene that people would actually attribute a crudely drawn penis <laughs> to one single frame, as if you're going to put all the effort in and then go, you know what, you know what, this scene's missing. I, I find it kind of interesting though the sort of a tradition of putting in little things here and there you know for one frame at a time or a couple of frames at a time and that subliminal stuff but the problem is with that is that you get like a couple of quite interesting quite compelling examples of of so wow they actually got away with that good for them but then for every one of those there's like 10 instances of like people just projecting like really wanting to see something that isn't there yeah. So it's kind of hard to filter out the ones that are authentic from just the made-up nonsense ones. You've seen The Lion King, haven't you, with a bit where, where Simba kind of collapses and all these these um, like fauna goes flying, flora rather, goes flying off the, the cliff and then Rafiki grabs it and sniffs it and knows that Simba's alive. And, and apparently mm. that says sex. Well, what people don't really realise is that was computer-generated and the people put the words SFX in. So special effects. Oh, is that their line on that? Well. <laughs> nice save. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, fair enough. I I mean, that's that's not the the most scandalous little in-joke, I suppose, but uh, I'm sure that entertained them. Mm. <laughs> there was a weird one where, for a long time, this is one of the ones that proved true. When you, Especially when you're a kid and you can never sort of tell which stuff is like people are making up and which stuff is um like actually has its roots in reality and my sister maintained for a very very long time that there was a line in aladdin where they refer to the uh the the culture of arabia as cutting off your ear if they don't like you and uh they had to change that because it was really racially insensitive and that's just one of those things i was sure she just sort of made up to try and be funny Hmm. But that turned out to be true. Like, that's on, like, sort of old pressings of the soundtrack. It's in one of the songs. It's like, Jesus, guys, maybe you should have had a bit of foresight and predicted that wouldn't go down that well. <laughs> All right, Disney. Cut the shit. It's like the, the hyper-racist Walt Disney is still alive. <laughs> God bless him. He's there in rushes going, it's nice, it's good, but is it racist enough? <laughs> And is it turning people gay? We need we need that perfect balance. <laughs> See, this is why we need to get Meryl Streep on one of these. Yeah, she'll show us the way. <laughs> is there anything else from the uh, from the British Animation Awards that kind of uh, floated your boat? Well, I like Ant Blades a lot. I think he won Public Choice. Oh, that was great, wasn't it? When Car Park was played. The audience went wild for it. It was very. It was great to see. He's always a crowd pleaser. He has that thing that really just sort of engages an audience and gets a good response from him. Mm -hmm. Some stuff I'd seen as well, like uh, Bye Bye Baby, The uh, I think it's an NFTS film. I like that one a lot. It's a really nice style. Uh, Gervais' Merriweather. Yeah. And um, the Peter Bainton video. It's a nice style. Oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. That's uh, a, a great film. I usually, when it comes to music videos, like animated music videos, I... I kind of, uh, unless, you know, if the narrative's well-placed like it is in The Lion, I can really, you know, ride along and enjoy it and things. But some animated music videos really kind of test me. And I'm obviously a big animation fan, but I can sometimes find myself skipping through because the marriage between music 
an animation is is a very tricky thing to get perfect, I think. Um, and in this case, in in the case of the lion, it was just you know beautifully put together. Yeah, I agree. It is. It's tricky to to get a really exceptional animated music video because it's easy to construct. I think the animation and the events of the animation, every, all the timings, more or less worked out for you. Um, and I find that a lot of music video directors have a tendency to coast. So the ones that really stand out stand out all the more. Darcy Prendergast, his stuff is great. Mm. There was that one particular yes. one. Forgot you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's fantastic. Mm. I mean, and that's so well-timed and everything, but it's also very visually inventive. You know, a good music video director, whether it's sort of animation or live action, really sort of stands out. But if you get a mediocre music video, it's going to be a lot more forgettable, I think, than just a mediocre short film. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? No, no, it like, makes perfect sense. I think basically because... I like narrative animation. If a narrative and an animation works works together hand in hand better, I would say, than just kind of an abstract piece of music and, and visuals. Mm-hmm. But if it's you know if it's good, it's good, and if it's if it's bad, it really suffers. You know, there's a there's a there's a fine uh, a fine sort of balance that you need to you need to find. And you know, the video that we're talking about now, uh, the Lion um, by uh, Peter Bainton. Is, uh, is just a perfect example. Yeah. Very well-deserved winner. So a film that we've talked about quite a lot in the past, uh, I Am Tom Moody, another deserving winner. I think it won Student Excellence Award, right? It won the Student Excellence Award at, uh, at the BAAs, yeah. Amongst its many awards. I mean, it's... it's you mm-hmm. know, but uh, this would be, I suppose, the latest or one of the more recent ones. And I think at this point, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've chatted to Ainsley a couple of times, Ainsley Henderson, the director... And uh, I figured it would be nice to maybe hear from him about the film. So here's a few words from Ainsley Henderson talking to squiggly writer Laura Beth Cowley about his work and his film, I Am Tom Moody. What is it about your films that you think have captivated the audiences and the critics? I think the thing that people like is the honesty in the, in the films that I make. I think, like, I, you know, I came to being an animator in a really odd route. I was a songwriter before I was an animator. And I think like I came to making animated films with a similar kind of sensibility that I had with songs. Like when I hear a like a good song, it always has to have someone in it saying something about their life that I really believe and I'm you know, it's convincing. And so I think I come to making animated films in a similar way, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be like impressed, and I don't want to be excited, and I don't want to be, I don't want a film to be exhilarating. I mean, it can be all those things, but the most important thing is that there's someone inside it saying something. Yes, that's saying something. Themselves. So I suppose I think people kind of feel that, and I think people get it, and I think that's what people like about it. Is it like a personal story? Because it's a, it's a very intimate film. Um, is it dealing with a personal issue or? I'm pretty up and down as a person. Like I have, I really feel things strongly, and I'm I'm affected by moods. And you know, I have periods of being profoundly um, melancholic, and then other times of feeling so so excitedly happy. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's kind of 
it's it's hard to get things done when you're up and down so much. So, uh, yeah, you know, and there's de definitely like, you know, kind of feelings in my in my head and in my being that are kind of conflicted. So I wanted a way of bringing all those things together, unifying them in a, in, a, in a film and in a character. You know, I kind of wanted to cartoon those voices in my head in Tom Moody. So yeah, there's definitely um, there's definitely bits of me in Tom. So Mackenzie Cook was the voice of Tom, correct? Mm -hmm. and, and his son was the young Tom? His son Jude, yeah. yeah. How did you get them involved? I've known Mackenzie for like 10 years or something. Oh, okay. Not terribly well, just kind of, you know, we've kind of been friends and kind of been in touch and I, I don't know, I've always really admired him as an actor and found him very, very funny and I just, I just, I like his, I like who he is, I like what mm. he's about and, and when I, when I was writing this character of Tom, I knew I needed someone who could play, um, like, parts of Tom that are deeply insecure mm -hmm. and stuttering and awkward and then at the same time be like really aggressive and um, you know domineering and have those two parts played really well and uh, you know I've seen Mackenzie do both of those things yeah brilliantly well he's got this he's got this one character that he does it he's not done it for years it was a, a song to a stand-up show and he did this um, geography teacher called Mr. Bagshaw, and the, the whole act is for him to stand in front of, like in a in a stand up, you know, situation, mm -hmm. and basically be a geography teacher shouting at the class. Excellent. And it's just, it's just, it was just, and you know, and for that kind of aggressive father bit of Tom, um, I think it was that that performance of Mackenzie's that made me think, oh, I'd love to get him to do it. So. so he really suited Tom down to the ground, really. really. suited it. And, and, and then when I went to record it with him, I knew I still didn't have anybody to do the, to do his son. And I kind of sheepishly suggested, because I felt bad asking, asking him if he would get Jude to do it. And I didn't know if Jude could do it, because I hadn't really seen Jude in a few years. Mm -hmm. um, but we got there and just decided to try it. And Jude was... Um, he, he, I mean, I knew Mackenzie could do it, but Jude absolutely amazed me. He was so He was natural. really good. The, the oh, child's so voice is so innocent, but yeah, like intense almost. Yeah, it's exactly that innocent because the voice recording bit of the little conversation at the end of Tom, where the two of them sit down together and talk. Mm -hmm. Like when we recorded that bit, we did it in Mackenzie's spare room. Oh. Because I didn't want to take Jude to a studio, and no. I thought that might make him uncomfortable. So we just did it in Mackenzie's spare room in his house, and we made this like little recording booth out of mattresses and uh, uh, duvets, like a den. Yeah, 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 like a den. And then they crawled inside with this one microphone, and the two of them like crowded round it, and then whispered into the microphone. It was just, and as soon as I, as soon as they recorded that, they did it maybe three times, I think, and each take was just was just lovely and as soon as I heard that recording I thought oh yeah we've, we've captured that scene you know that's yeah that was one bit of the film I was really right from the start I was like yeah, that's gonna that's gonna work oh excellent so you, you made this whilst you were studying at the Edinburgh School of Art is that right yeah yeah um what did you learn at Edinburgh and how have you applied it to Iron Tom Moody Edinburgh's a really odd school because it 
they never give you classes in animation. Like, there was a few little classes in, you know, like a walk cycle or something like that, but most of the time you're just left to figure things out for yourself and mm -hmm. you learn off other students, you know, as much as you learn anything from tutors. Was this a MA? No, no, no it was an undergrad. Oh, it was an undergrad, okay. Yeah, undergrad. Um, so... I don't know, I suppose I learned to be self kind of... Reliant? Yeah, yeah, mm. self-reliant and to, to have my own motivation and, you know, they really let you do what you what you want to do. So you, you have to really figure out what it is that you want to do mm. and think about that and think about why you're doing it and all that kind of stuff, you know, they don't, they don't hold your hand through it. No. Which is great. So, yeah, yeah that, that, you know, so I suppose I've kind of carried that on out of school. Okay. So, you've mentioned, you mentioned earlier on that you were originally a singer-songwriter. What made you come into animation and how does the music influence your film? I came into animation, um, I lived in a, in a kind of mad commune that had a pottery on the bottom of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I got into making things out of clay. And then I got into making sculptures and I just adored sculpting characters and like I've got in my house I've got these mad little ceramic creatures dotted around and um, I saw a friend's film called Solo Duets, it's a beautiful stop motion film by an animator called Joseph Feltis. He, he, I saw that and that's when I understood that Edinburgh College of Art had a real reputation for stop motion animation. Okay. Um, and somewhere in my mind, I've I've always had this knowing that I'm gonna go and do a degree in stop motion animation at some point in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think just those things came together. And I turned thirty, so I turned thirty. I was loving making ceramic sculptures. I saw this film by Joseph. Yeah, I'd known I was gonna do it somehow, and then and I I don't know. These things just came together, and I kind of put a portfolio together and was accepted. I went straight in the second year. I didn't do the first foundation year because I knew really what? clearly I wanted to do animation, you know, and I wanted to do stop motion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those, those, that's how I came to be there. And the other part you asked, um, well, I suppose it, it, in the way that I was writing a personal film, so it had to be about a musician and that's like... But I, I think there's something in the kind of... You know, it's it's interesting to me that like that that when you listen to the film, there's not that much sound design in it. It's kind of like the voice is the music of the film. Right. You know, I recorded all those voices first, and then I edited all of those before I started animating. So it was kind of when I'm animating, the sound design is always kind of in my head. The sound design and the music. Mm -hmm. That's often that leads me in a way before the visual stuff arrives. I suppose being a musician influences me in that way. The making of film that accompanies Tom Moody is a, is fantastic, and it shows the highs and lows of production. What was it like to create that, like alongside? The the making of um, mm. I didn't really think about that at all. I just like I would just like what you see in the making of is a, a tiny fraction of what I actually shot because I would just you know when you're when you're in a little dark room for months and months it gets yeah. pretty lonely yeah and so recording I would just open like photo booth and just talk 
as a way of like it was almost like having a friend in there with me so it was kind of comforting you find yourself talking to the puppet an awful lot don't you yeah you start to get a you form a funny relationship with the puppet yeah it has a kind of light and i think that that's what the making of really does yeah i mean all credit to uh, will anderson my friend i don't know if you know will's work as well uh yeah yeah so I, I just shot tons of stuff i filmed loads of things i did loads of interviews and then i kind of dumped it on will to edit it and, and to his credit he edited out all the stuff that I thought was important. Like there was, I went into loads of detail about the technical processes yeah. of what I was doing and how it was shot and all of that stuff. And he just, like, he just kind of threw all that away and just focused on my mad emotional turmoil. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I think it's a weird trait of stop motionists to be like obsessed with like, but look how I made the puppet because yes. we really get like on <laughs> yeah. and off on that kind of thing. Like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. weird details that yeah. we get yeah. obsessed with, but nobody else finds remotely interesting. Exactly. We've put that online. There's probably like a hundred stop motion animators all over the world fascinated and everybody else bored senseless with it. Yeah. Can you give us any indication of the development of ideas like storyboards, animatics, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I um, I didn't do a lot of storyboarding for Tom. It's that's something that I'm really learning now. With Tom, I took a voice recorder and walked around in the woods a lot, and would like like this. This I've got streams of audio of me just like ranting in this tape recorder being these two parts of his mind you know playing mm -hmm. so it came about in that in that way a lot of it mm -hmm. and i built the puppets early on so i so i was kind of you know voicing these characters that I, and, and i knew how they looked and then my storyboards were appalling they were really embarrassing and so was the animatic the animatic was so poor and i think I think on reflection, could, the film could have been better if I'd focused on that a little bit more. Like when I watched Tom back, I think it could be just edited a little bit, it could be a bit tighter. Yeah, I was still very much working things out with, with Tom. I've started making a new film. Will and I have been so uh, proactive in storyboarding and animatic. Like we've, we've built an animatic that is the most beautiful animatic. It's so slick and tight and it shows every shot really, really clearly. I think it's something worth doing. Yeah. I could have saved myself a bit of pain in Tom Woody if I'd done that. On um, Will Anderson, I was going to say, um, as well as your success with Tom Moody, obviously you worked on Longbird as well. What was it like to work with Will Anderson? Obviously you seem to have like quite a good connection with him anyway, but that was great. Will was in the year before me at art school. He was in fourth year and I was in third year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't, in third year, I didn't have as much pressure on me. I was just kind of having fun. And Will was the one with all the pressure on him. He was, in a, that's kind of how we met and got to know each other. He was making Longbird. And I was just really taken with his idea and with his kind of spirit and his energy. He's a really bright, smart, funny guy, Will. So just being around him is a pleasure. So, you know, and he's kind of contagious, Will. You get caught up in, in what he does. And I think he finds my ideas contagious as well sometimes. So we, we just kind of 
if one of us has a good idea, the other one just muscles in on it. It seems to be the way it's working. So Will was making Longbird, I was so taken with it, and uh, we never had a formal agreement. It was never like, right, okay, I'm going to come and help write this. We just were able to talk about it really well. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of conversations about Longbird, and I kind of helped in any way I could. And uh, Will very generously put me on as a writer at the end, which obviously I'm very gratefully did. It's it's amazing how connected the animation world is. Well, it seems like it. I mean, having been involved in the music industry, it seems like the animation industry is a much friendlier place with fewer egos and it's a kinder world, I think. I, th I think it's just because everyone, it, it goes back to that kind of nerdy loving of weird things that other people find really boring mm. and so we can talk for hours about to mm. what is rubbish to other people but for us it's just ridiculously interesting I um, think so, I think so and I think also like there's not, you know, compared to the amount of work that you have to put in animation there's very little glory that you get for it yeah. and the glory that you get is for your film you know, it's never, it's not like music it's never really for you mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good thing um, you mentioned earlier that you're working on this new film. Can you tell us any more about that, or is sure. it kind of hush-hush? <laughs> no, no, I can tell you a bit about it. It's um, it's a stop-motion animation with some kind of live action spliced into it. Mm -hmm. It's based on a real-life psychologist called Harry Harlow, who did a series of experiments in the 50s and 60s called the Monkey Love Experiments. Okay. And, you know, I have a real interest in psychology, so that's how I kind of know this. These experiments were equally cruel and bizarre, but they profoundly changed the way that we think about our connections with our parents and how we learn to love. So it's set in Harry's world, although Harry isn't really a big part of it. It's focused on a, a monkey called Gandhi. <laughs> and uh, it's set in the time of the space landing. So it's in the run-up to the space launch mission. Okay. And Gandhi manages to convince himself that he is a monkey who's destined for space travel, when actually he's a monkey in, in Harry Harlow's lab. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the story of Monkey Love Experiments. Oh, well, that's that's really interesting. That's very very different. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. <laughs> it's often the best thing, though. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's kind of. I, I wanted with like because Tom Moody's such a personal film. It's like mm -hmm. really me. I wanted to make something that was a bit more universal. That would be. I wanted to make something about love. I knew that, and I wanted to kind of explore what love is and what it means to people and how we learn to love and why we learn to love hmm. and, um, and I thought by putting it in a monkey you know it makes it less particular to one individual so we can think about it as a concept more than love in, in one particular individual person yeah you're working on that right now kind of thing yeah it's me and Will Will's doing art direction and compositing and I'm directing it and animating it and we both wrote it. So it really is a real collaboration, this one. Oh, are um, you doing eye compositing on it? Live compositing, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it'll be a monkey composited in a live set. It's a really interesting process. It's our first funded film, so we're 
yeah, we're being funded, so I'm, I'm able to employ like armature makers, puppet makers, and um, we've got a DOP. Suddenly, there's this a sound designer. Suddenly, there's like you know, we've got a whole team working on this, which is great. It's really, really, it's a really interesting learning curve. It's nice to be able to allocate. Kind of yeah, things. it's a different type of stress though because oh, like, yeah. you do everything on your own, it's like that's really stressful because you have to do everything. But when you allocate things out, it's like suddenly you have to learn to trust people. I'm lucky I've got good people though. I've got I've been able to hand pick really, really good people. So that's that's reassuring. Excellent. So that was Ainsley Henderson there. He's continued to work with uh, Will Anderson. Since I'm Tom Moody, they've made a few films together. Some of them are quite short and sweet and silly and simple, and others are more kind of um, complex and thought through. There's a film of theirs that uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing when it's sort of finally out there, which I know as Monkey Love Experiments. I'm not sure if that's the final title. Do you know about that one? As so far as I know, that's the final title, yeah, but I'm looking oh. forward to seeing that as well. Yeah, looks uh, really nice. They've got a, a Tumblr. Uh, based on the, the, the Monkey Love experiments, I believe, so people can check it out there. They're a great couple, aren't they, working together with a great variation in the work. They can put together some some short and, and snappy, funny uh, animations with the likes of uh, the, the, the Malky character, hmm. this kind of um, ne'er-do-well seagull. Wasn't it Cleggy? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're two other characters, Scroogin' on a Greg. <laughs> oh, that's the one I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah. on the Greg. <laughs> Sometimes I'll just be in my apartment and I'll just be saying that, like, out loud. <laughs> that and, like, I was quite ill a couple of weeks ago, and I swear, you know when you're, like, ill and you wake up in the night and you're just sort of babbling and you don't realise until afterwards that you've been in a kind of, like, hallucinatory delirium? No, but continue. I woke up with this ridiculous fever, kind of just sort of babbling to myself, but I was just sort of, like... Sarah and Duck. <laughs> Sarah and Duck. Sarah and Duck. <laughs> and I sort of woke up like, what the? You woke up and you turned into Roger Allen. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have like been editing the video the night before or something, and it was sort of weirdly lingering in my brain. <laughs> Comes from living like in an apartment without housemates. Like, you develop sort of weird sort of layers of crazy. Indoor crazy, I call it. <laughs> I can stamp it down when I'm around normal people outside, but yeah, pretty much as soon as my foot crosses the threshold into my apartment, I just start talking to myself. <laughs> yes, I know it well. So you can find out more about the work of Will Anderson and Ainsley Henderson at whiterobot.co.uk. They have a bunch of their films on there. If you want to visit um, Ainsley Henderson's Tumblr, uh, it's when I grow up, I want to be an animator. There's some quite nice, sweet stuff. So another good thing about the, the British Animation Awards is that it's an opportunity for the public to get involved. Obviously, they can get involved in the Public Choice Awards, but the Sting competition is incredibly popular every year. Anyone can basically enter this, and then all of a sudden they're in competition alongside feature films and, and, and fantastic short films, commercials, uh, all this incredible work from the past two years, and they're alongside it. Um, uh, and being being celebrated uh, just as vigorously as uh, as any other uh, in the room. Well, I mean, talent is talent, you know, and uh, a good idea is a good idea. It's always going to be entertaining, and I think these kinds of competitions are great because it's it's short form, it's feasible, and it's a way for people to kind of uh, crack their knuckles a bit and come up with something uh, 
cool and nifty and interesting. So I guess at the end of the day, they were so darn good that there was actually a tie in the non-professional category. The uh, BAA Sting Award went to Katie Single, who did a very sort of Damien Hirst-esque piece of work, and uh, Jack David Evans, who had a kind of 2D Tartakovsky-esque, perhaps, sort of Cartoon Network looking very nice. The professional award went to Anthony Farquhar Smith. But uh, we managed to catch up a little bit with Jack David Evans while we were milling about in the uh, post-award ceremony uh, atmosphere. So uh, here's a couple of words from Mr. Jack David Evans. Uh, Well, my film is about little Bo Peep who uh, lost her sheep and uh, she doesn't know where to find him. Uh, So really the film is just to uh, document exactly how little Bo Peep finds her lost sheep and uh, the different methods that she tries to um, locate beloved friend. My influences are um, its quite tricky. I have quite a lot of influences. I suppose um, a lot of classic Hanna-Barbera cartoons, um, the Flintstones and Yogi Bear, uh, Looney Tunes, um, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. I love John Kay. Um, It's pretty obvious in my work, I suppose. Um, Just influenced by a lot of um, um, animation media. You're a student at the moment. Yeah. Tell us how you came across this opportunity and what's so appealing about it. Um, I have to thank my lecturers there, the lecturers at the University of South Wales. Um, They put out an email um, notifying um, all of us about uh, the uh, Stings competition. I didn't think anything of it, I just took part and, um, you know, I I got a call that I was here, so. you know, and I, I didn't think that I would win, so that was really incredible for me. Yes, um, I'm really chuffed with that, really. How's your first experience at the British Animation Awards been? Um, a bit daunting, to be honest. Um, you know, being surrounded by um, so many people, um, but it's fantastic, you know. Um, I've just been talking to a couple of people in there now, and uh, absolutely lovely, wonderful people. Uh, it's fantastic to watch all the films um, up on the screen. It's uh, really exciting, yeah. Excellent, Jack David Evans. Thank you very much for filming this Thank you very much. Beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. And uh, if you want to obviously find out more about the British Animation Awards, you can check out our video or just type British Animation Awards into the search bar at the top of squiggly.com. Stephen, what else can you tell me about new developments in the animation world? Any new movies on the horizon? Pray. That was so William Shatner. Stephen, what else? <laughs> Here's my hero. <laughs> Any new movies on the horizon? It's been a real month of trailers here, there and everywhere, hasn't it? I mean, let's start at the beginning. Uh, since the last on the last podcast, we saw the uh, Paddington trailer, which I thought was quite refreshing, given that uh, another children's classic, which we talked about in the last podcast, Postman Pat, seemed to have received... Quite a bashing. This trailer at least seemed to be along the right lines. This teaser, shall we say, seemed to be along the right lines. It did seem like you couldn't really even put them in the same category. Absolutely. Well, I just did. Again, I probably won't go and see that one, but just from sort of... You can just sort of tell. I think they're probably trying more consciously to appeal more to people who have a nostalgic fondness for Paddington Bear but have grown up, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Postman Pat movie as we discussed, really didn't have any concession for anyone over the age of, like, three. 
Yeah, you know? particularly uncultured un, uh, three-year-olds as well. A trailer that's emerged in the last month that I really like uh, are a couple of trailers from Leica for their movie uh, that's coming up uh, this year. I think the Box Trolls. Have you seen the two Box Trolls trailers? I've definitely seen one of them. I'm, I've been following the sort of the general kind of you know what we've well what we've put up on the site. Yeah, <laughs> generally I tend to take a look at. Um, <laughs> I think it looks great. I'm I'm Team Leica. I was actually kind of championing Leica to sort of people. Some of the the people I know outside of the animation industry having conversations with the normals. Um, but I was sort of explaining to them about like the sort of different spirits different animation studios have about preserving a certain kind of look and aesthetic and overall attitude about like how to put together a, a really nicely conceived animated film visually, but marrying it with a good story as well. Mm-hmm. And with stop motion, even though it's kind of m- more around now, it's still a little bit in the shadow of CGI, which is a shame. But like you're a really kind of gone the extra mile as far as keeping that alive they're also uh they're set up in an, in, in an incredible way because they don't really answer to they only really have to answer to distributors i believe who's going to distribute the film but they don't have to, they don't have a, a kind of studio agenda their films are made for themselves as opposed to be made for a, a target audience or or a marketing campaign or, or you know any kind of you know preconceived notions that this will be successful or that will be successful. You know, obviously they want to make a film that everyone's going to enjoy, but at the same, in the same breath, they're not willing to kind of compromise the creativity. And this shows itself in the trailers, I believe, because the first trailer that came out um, this month, in the last month, there's been uh, previous trailers. There was one that was kind of really going for the craft, showing you how small the models were and showing you how the models are made and things. It was a nice little behind-the-scenes trailer, which was very nice. And then uh, the first trailer that was released this month was just music and the uh, characters interacting and moving and, and things. But there was no talking. And, there was, and, and more importantly, there was no voiceover. You didn't have the, the trailer guy saying, you know, in a world before this happens and then this happens. You know, that's basically how animation trailers seem to be. And like a steer clear of that. Well, more power to them is all I can say. Absolutely. I'm sure it'll be another hit. They have a good track record at this point. Well, an excellent creative uh, track record. I love Paranorman. I thought it was absolutely excellent. Certainly one of the strongest of that sort of crop. I just like it when when you're looking at something and you feel like you're looking at something new, you know? Not everyone Mm. feels that way. You know, some people um, are a little quick to, uh, to write new styles off, you know, or something different or something that's sort of perceived as being a little... um, well, I don't know. The uh, This Peanuts movie seems to have gotten a bit of criticism from certain uh, other animation news outlets, which um, I will say while I'm not entirely sure from the Peanuts teaser trailer exactly what they're going to go for style-wise, like it doesn't seem like the style that they've used for the trailer would be easily sustainable for a feature film is my only real criticism about it. Mm. But I, I just like that it doesn't look like every other film based on an, an old property. Yes. You know, the music, especially, it's exactly the way they kind of approached the music with the old animated specials. You know, this sort of weird mix of, like, CG textures and, like, hand-drawn scribbles 
that's kind of a nice angle i thought but um at the end of the day if it's a good film it's a good film because of what kind of story they come up with so sure that's sort of really what it boils down they to. got to sustain an hour and a half as well which is important did you have any opinion either way on the old peanuts cartoons uh, it's not something that I particularly enjoyed as a as a kid. I mean, uh, they were on in the background and I'd watch them, but they they didn't excite me like like you know like something like Inspector Gadget, for example. <laughs> you know, I was hardly I was hardly like the kind of well that was thrilling. Well, <laughs> well, when he said "Go Go Gadget Legs," f- knows what would happen. <laughs> you know, anything would happen. <laughs> <laughs> on the edge of your seat uh, but I wasn't quite you know you didn't quite get that with peanuts oh. but uh, I I really like the trailer and, and obviously as an adult when you watch peanuts now you kind of appreciate the tone of peanuts and uh, we have had uh, Dennis um, Sisterson uh, who actually worked on some of the peanuts films he wrote up his reaction to the teaser trailer which you can find uh, on the website so if you want to check that out you can see that and the trailer took him on a kind of nostalgic tour, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I just like the look of it. It looks quite good. I'm not overly impressed with the curl at the front of his hair. Because if you look at the if you look at the mouths, it kind of bunches up on the left and the right hand side where the pen would have been. You know, mm-hmm. the kind of the ink sink, sinking in. That that works really well. But you know, they could have made the curl look like like a pen stroke as well or something. But it. You know, like you say, it looks like it looks questionable. It's more protuberant. (laughs) It certainly is. Only one criticism on an otherwise, you know, exciting, exciting in terms of let's see what where they're going to go with this trailer, which is you know just done the job of a trailer. You know, you're looking at it and you're thinking, God, what are they going to do next? What are they going to do? I can't wait to see more. Well, slow down. (laughs) (laughs) Are you not? um, You're not quite as excited as me. A bit of showmanship, then. You know, two years in, the, the audience need a little bit of razzmatazz. We can't just <laughs> we can't coast. We gotta big these things up. I think, like now, I kind of appreciate the old comic strip more. You know, and I I, I felt there was something a little kind of vanilla about the old cartoons that I suspect if I watched them again as an adult, I'd I'd still feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a sort of bleakness, I think, to the the comic strip. It was never that direct, you know. It wasn't like God is dead, Charlie Brown, <laughs> but it was. It, w- it wasn't that far from it. It was. It was definitely a kind of vibe of, hey, no one really likes you, or has ever liked you, Charlie <laughs> Brown. That was like the punchline in some of the old ones. Like, you do realize you don't actually have any friends, right? <laughs> And then, like, this the last panel would just be him, like, crying. <laughs> I don't know if I'm getting this right, really, but there's, there's similarities between Doug, really. Do you remember Doug? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Peanuts. There's a, a kind of similarity. I'm not saying they're, they're on par at all, but... Uh... There was another one sort of after Doug. I think it was also Nickelodeon. Kid, it was a kid who had a sort of football head, a bit like Stewie. Hey, Arnold. And that was pretty depressing. Yeah. I didn't watch all of it, but that was, it had that same, it was like, it was pre-adolescent kids with ennui. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you have to be so down all the time for crying out loud? <laughs> you, li- you live in a cartoon world. Savor it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so another teaser trailer that's recently emerged is, uh, 
It's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trailer. Oh, what's that about? It's about uh, some kind of amphibious creatures that are uh, between the age of 13 and 19. I actually don't really approve of this whole film because of the way the guy has changed the original premise of them being aliens from outer space and now he's made them mutants and i just think that completely you know it's sacrilegious you've got to learn to love it ben because it's going to be everywhere so i uh, you see the trailer i saw it earlier today yeah what do you think it's michael bay kind of sticking to the same formula of transformers but instead of transformers he's sticking you know instead of the bright colorful uh, Transformers universe that we remember as kids he's taken the bright colourful Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles universe that we remember as kids and kind of applied a darkness and a certain effects to it which uh, is very sort of reminiscent of Transformers well just any Michael Bay film yeah really. sure I mean I, I just I'm not too crazy about that whole cinematography style you know it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I mean, I'd like to see a bit of character in the film as opposed to, you know, it just being a kind of slow motion action romp. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is is a tongue in cheek thing from the start anyway, so I'd like to think that, that Michael Bay would have taken the same spirit with, with the feature. He well, he's, you know, he's got to really if it's gonna be a success, I would I would say. Would you agree? It sort of depends. And here's why I, I say that. I think that when something starts off as being tongue-in-cheek and then develops a devoted fan base, the tongue-in-cheek component starts to erode and it becomes less and less self-aware. It starts to become less ironic and less of a parody and less of a, um, uh, less of a sort of dig at a culture and it becomes just embraced by the culture that it was originally sort of satirizing. And then for someone like me who kind of gravitates more toward the, the tongue-in-cheek component or something like that, it loses quite a lot of its appeal. But to what I suspect is a lot more people, it gains a lot more appeal because then it's legitimized itself in their eyes and it's something that they can be allowed to take seriously in a way. Mm -hmm. Any old cartoon that was basically designed to sell collectible action figures and they make a really kind of dramatic film about it. I mean, I didn't see the Transformers, the new films. I suspect they aren't very funny or self-referential or witty. I may be wrong. No, you might be right. But that sort of, in a way, that kind of appeases the people who are now, you know, in their 30s who collected all those toys and for whatever reason never kind of let go and then they can sort of see this thing that's being taken so seriously based on source material that they kind of should have maybe grown out of. Yeah. The, uh, so essentially, I think that, that, you know, a film like this, yes, if it retains some of the humor, that's good. But, you know, a lot of times it's a different kind of humor, maybe. Like, I think even by the time they made a cartoon series of Ninja Turtles, it wasn't really a parody. It was humor designed and aimed toward its young audience. The sequels to the original Jim Henson movie were unwatchable because they were the same thing. It was bad humor targeted toward young children. I've actually seen online... I mean, this is a great thing about YouTube now. You can see all these like different areas and subsections of a franchise that you never would have come across, but people will like review them on YouTube and things like that. And there's a guy who like found a bunch of like Ninja Turtles videos, like low-budget movies and like TV specials and stuff like that, and it, it's so atrocious. 
like just the cheap crap they came up with that they slapped this label on the guy ah oh Christ what's his name James Rolfe I mm. think but I may be getting him confused with the nostalgia critic right they kind of look the same anyway people on YouTube they basically they can sort of put up clips of things and like talk about things so you don't have to watch them in fact one of them is his like his catchphrases I review this so you don't have to watch it yeah that's that is the nostalgia critic right it says, I watch it so you don't have to. Now, is that the guy that you showed me his video of the Tom, Tom and Jerry, and Jerry. Film? Yeah, that's yeah. a perfect example, because I would never go see that film in a million years. But seeing just sort of the clips of that film and, like, the, the awful... He sort of described what the story was. And uh, actually, after the last podcast we did, I was trying to remember more of that sequel to The Mask. The Son of the Mask. No, I, I found him, this same guy, doing a video about that movie. And... <laughs> I I guess I didn't see it because I was sure I'd seen it because we talked about it last time and I'm watching all these clips from it. So I must have seen maybe like five minutes of it on TV. But he was showing clips from this film. That film is terrifying. Well, when you're saying terrifying, I thought you were going to say terrible. (laughs) It's terrifying. It's the stuff of cocodamol-induced nightmares. Find this guy's video. It taps into the same fight-flight thing of your brain as that old Pixar movie, the Tin Toy Baby film. <laughs> You're just terrified of the baby. Yes! <laughs> Bad baby CGI is alarming. Yeah. Babies that move in a way that's irreal and not right is the stuff of nightmares. The uncanny valley. And the whole, I guess the whole plot of this film is that this guy has a baby that is like a cartoon character, so it does all this goofy cartoon stuff to mess with his head. But the CG is so bad, and so ill-conceived, and so misjudged, it's genuinely troubling. Mm-hmm. To find it. I've I've seen the film. I really don't want to have to watch the film again. But I remember the CGI, the baby CGI, and the twisting of the head, and all the vomit, and all the sort of horrid, stupid kind of Chuck Jones, Tex Avery, pissing on their graves kind of humour. It's an insult. (laughs) It really is. I kind of think it's worth people who work in CG or just are are interested in, you know, the way CG and live action is sort of put together these days to go back at something that was made less than 10 years ago. But it seems so far away from where we are now. Mm-hmm. and so uncomfortable to watch you watch a film where they kind of combine the CG and the uh, live action I guess like with this new Ninja Turtles film and it's like eh we're, we're not quite there yet there's sort of a disconnect and whatever but then you look back at you know where we were it's like oh wow okay no we've come a long way mm-hmm. one of the first complaints that I've, that I've seen about the Ninja Turtles trailer is that when he does take his mask off at the end somebody said put something on I think it was io9 or whatever link I sent you it was the nostrils flaring. And the person's like, oh, those nostrils. <laughs> and, and as you just said there, you would have had nostrils 10 years ago. When I was a lad, we, we, we dreamt of nostrils. <laughs> we didn't have any. <laughs> you ungrateful little shit. The last time I watched that old Jim Henson Ninja Turtles film was with um, Matt Walker, who has been on the podcast about a year ago. He worked on that Graham Chapman film, amongst mm-hmm. uh, many other things. And uh, he pointed out some moments in that film where, like, the guys in the suits, because it was guys in suits back then. Like, there's a point where, like, one of the turtles is trying to, like, put, like, a toothpick in his mouth, and he keeps missing, and he keeps, like, <laughs> stabbing himself in the face. 
<laughs> and he finally gets it in, but I guess that was like the best take they could use. <laughs> but he made a very good point about the new one as well. He, I saw him the other week, and I think I guess he'd seen like a still or something from this trailer, and he his description of it was absolutely bang on. He said it's like they've designed it and didn't know where to stop, and just kept <laughs> designing and designing and designing. So that's what you sort of got with these characters. They're sort of huge and overly detailed and complex. I have a feeling that maybe they kind of went back and changed the thing back from being aliens after they finalized the designs because mm-hmm. they look more like aliens from this trailer. And I think maybe after there was that backlash of people saying, you know, no, this is BS. We're not going to go see the movie if unless they're actual mutant turtles because that's a very important thing to have fidelity toward. <laughs> it's also more believable. Exactly. I mean, how are we supposed to invest ourselves in this crap? <laughs> aliens, indeed. Who goes to see films about aliens? There is no precedent set for films about aliens being at all successful in the box office, Michael Bay. Oh. So, yeah, and they're very alien-y looking turtles in this one. What are you going to do? Yeah. Another superhero that's that's kind of either making a supposed animation or live-action kind of appearance is Banana Man. Well, it's about time. Yeah. <laughs> a website's appeared, basically with the, the heroic Banana Man theme playing in the background. And the only two clues are the uh, Elstree Studios logo and the DC Thompson uh, logo. But it does look that in 2015, we're going to have a Banana Man movie. I mean, I don't know if you was a big dandy, uh, well, it was dandy when we were kids, uh, reader, uh, if you're a fan of Banana Man, or whether you used to watch the... Um, TV series when you were a kid? I was vaguely aware of it. It's one of those things that obviously it had the goodies in, so it was, um, it had that kind of certain style and, and energy to it, which was really, which, which was really great. But still, it's going to be entertaining to see what direction that, that takes. Mm-hmm. Also, this month, another superhero is to return. And this is a superhero which I actually do want to see <laughs> return, and that's The Incredibles. Uh-huh. Did you see the news? Superheroes. Superheroes, yes. They're coming back after after Cars and Cars 2 and and, and and loads of Pixar kind of sequels. We're finally getting the sequel that we want by the looks of things. Well, I'm getting the sequel that I want. I've long since said that the, the kind of the Pixar films are great standalone films. You know, you can watch any of them and, you know, it's, it's job well done. You know, and, and let's kind of, let's move on. <laughs> You've told a great story. There's no real need for a sequel or a franchise or whatever. Mm. Um, and that seemed to be the way that, that, that Pixar was going for a while with the exception of uh, the Toys, uh, Toy Story franchise. But um, the film that really kind of, you left the cinemas wanting more was, um, was The Incredibles. Because, you know, as amazing as it was, it did kind of, uh, end with a kind of there could be more you know nudge wink and uh, yeah it's exciting to see some more of that and obviously there's cast th- three as well but you know meh <laughs> well put <laughs> what you mean there isn't going to be a planes two first they'll probably fit about five plane sequels in before <laughs> before we get the the uh, box office treat which is uh, cast three like we said earlier on obviously cars has its audience which is uh John Lasseter and uh, children, but yeah, more more goodness coming from um, from Pixar. So yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed. So, which one are you looking forward to the most of all? 
<laughs> well, out of everything we've spoke about, or after the out of just the two uh, Pixar films, everything on the horizon. Mm, box trolls. Fair enough. Yeah. What about yourself? Finding Dory, I guess. That's the one I can't wait to see. What what scrapes will she get into next? <laughs> Who knows. So also we had our uh, uh, second squiggly screening event, which uh, was a lot of fun. Love, lust, and libido. We put it together with CineMeFilms.com, which is a Bristol-based uh, semi-regular film night, which uh, they've showed some films of mine over the years. And uh, after our Encounters Fringe event in, I think, August of last year, which went down very well, we've been kind of, you know throwing the ball back and forth a bit about doing more sort of screenings and things like that we did a sort of repeat screening of that event at the Bradford Animation Festival and um, and it just sort of seemed like a nice kind of idea of, of doing something in Bristol again and uh, who knows what uh, the future will be for these kinds of things but it went down very well there's been a little bit of interest about perhaps showing a version of the screening a variation of the screening in different uh, areas of the UK so keep your eyes peeled on squiggly.com and uh, see what we have coming up in the future. Hopefully we can do stuff like this again. It'd be, it'd be good to do stuff like this again. I mean, Love, Lust and Libido, it seemed like a great program. Um, and also Love, Lust and Libido are your three favourite things. Pretty much. It's it's, you know, <laughs> it's my family crest, actually. <laughs> Excellent. Such a great program. And also because of the subject matter, it's kind of all in, really, rather than kind of tiptoeing around the edges and maybe trying something which would be immediately kind of bums on seats. It's nice for you to have curated alongside features writer Laura Beth Cowley this program of, of films because there might not be a comfortable watch for everyone, but put together and when you're involved in the package, I'm, I'm sure it may, made a, a, an excellent viewing experience. They were all films about sex, basically. Now, it just didn't occur to me that that would be something anyone would take issue with until a couple of people that I kind of personally invited made sort of comments about it, about how, like, they were a little sort of reluctant to go to something like that. And in every circumstance, they were always, like, the last people I would imagine that would take any kind of issue with that kind of thing. People that I know have kind of a juvenile sense of humor or people that I know are you know, quite uh, ribald in their banter and stuff like that, but there is something still. Or, or the guy that sells you your porn. Yeah, I mean, that guy, I mean, I figure at this point we're close enough. <laughs> and I guess apparently I'm crossing some kind of boundary. Jesus Christ. People today, yeah. you know. But it's strange that even within the industry of animation, there are still people who, like, have to deal with the issue of people writing animation off as something that's just for children but they themselves have a little bit of an issue with animation being for adults mm -hmm. it wasn't like we were showing porn that doesn't really work with cartoons i mean there's that whole thing like with you know let's say back in the day a young ben mitchell thought he was downloading the last season of the sopranos and it turned out to be a subsection of japanese animation called hentai that had been mislabeled and Ben Mitchell learned a thing or two about other cultures. <laughs> That's a whole entirely different universe. These were mainly European and Western short films. I'm not going to write off 
the entire sort of culture of Japanese animation, you know, as being sort of weird and deviant. I'm sure they can deal with adult subject matter. But as far as that kind of known animated sex thing, whatever, like, audience it has, this was a completely different sort of kettle of fish. You know, we had films that were usually about something deeper or at the very least were fun to watch from a technical perspective that just happened to all be tied together using sex as a theme. And I think that you get some really, really good, funny, interesting films out of that. You know, people from England like 12 Foot 6 and Studio AKA, um, wonderful uh, recent film by a guy called Joseph Mann called Sandy. It was with uh, Blink Inc. Ruth Lingford, who's a British director, but she's based in the States. Sydney Bauman, who we've had on the podcast, based in the States as well. But she's from Latvia. German films, Swiss films, uh, films from Poland, a whole range. Oh, Ross Butter, another UK guy. And a classic Bill Plimpton thrown in for good measure. Well, yeah, that was wonderful. That was a nice, uh, that was a great get. <laughs> it was sort of a last minute edition, but that's one of my favourites of his. How to Make Love to a Woman. A sort of perfect example of his uh, great drawing style and the very, very bizarre, very funny way his mind works. The sort of slapstick, surreal ideas that no one would ever come up with, but they make them very sort of uniquely Bill Plimpton. <laughs> that, I think, is actually one of my earliest memories of Bill Plimpton, is my dad watching that film, I think, when it was broadcast to me being in the room, and us both falling on the floor at a bit where, for no reason whatsoever, a guy is playing with the woman's nipple, and the nipple just stabs him in the <laughs> eye. <laughs> and he's rolling on the floor. I remember me and my dad pissing ourselves at that. <laughs> and that was before I even knew who Bill Plimpton was, and then years and years later, uh, I saw that one again. They made the connection. So that was wonderful to be able to put that in as well. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe we'll be able to put together either a sort of follow-up screening or possibly a variation on this uh, original screening. It goes to show what you said earlier on about animation um, not just being for kids. It's not just for adults either. Animation is an art form and as such it's for everyone. Hmm. And so there's many different levels to it. You know, there is the stuff that won't get as much uh, exposure on this podcast, the, the kind of crazy Japanese hentai stuff. Uh, and then there's this kind of thing which is just great filmmaking that happens to have sex in the centre of it. Hmm. You know, it's not grotesque in any way. It's not, um, it's not filth. It's, it's, you know, it's answering the kind of questions that, are, that a piece of art needs to answer, you know, like film answers. Some of it was filth, but it was filth that was entertaining <laughs> and funny and gloriously sort of unabashed. And I think for the most part, you know, it went down very well. There was one old couple at the back who I think just sort of came along without really knowing what the thing was going to be about. I think they just wanted a <laughs> night out at the theater. I don't think they were too crazy about it, but everyone who came knowing what they wanted to see, it was mainly, I think, students and um, some people that I knew, some animation freelancers. It was a really good turnout, and it was uh, very encouraging, I think, the feedback and the, the overall response. Uh, so another film that's doing the rounds and, and, and actually won at the British Animation Awards uh, was uh, Marilyn Miller by uh, Mikey Please. The BAFTA winning Mikey, please from the Eagle Man Stag, uh, which I'm sure you remember, Ben. Do you uh, do you remember the Eagle Man Stag? Did you enjoy it? Yes, it's. Uh, I mean, that was the one that put him on the map, pretty much, wasn't it? Yeah, it came from that great year, uh, 2011, where the RCA just basically attacked the BAFTA nominations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you had uh, Matthias uh, Hogg with um, uh, Thursday, uh, David uh, Prosser with. 
uh, Matta Fisher, I think was his film, and uh, and Mikey, Mikey, please. So you had these three pals kind of <laughs> all after the BAFTA, which must have been a, quite an unusual experience. Um, but yeah, Mikey uh, uh, ended up with the, with the BAFTA. I'm sure they all stayed friends in the end, yes? And I'm sure they all had a good night out. I think anyone who has seen a film of his, even if they don't necessarily know the name, the style would stick in their heads. And I think if they saw a still from Beagleman Stag or even this new film, they would identify it pretty much immediately as his work. He has really hit upon something that's very fresh and yet, I suspect, timeless. I don't see this dating anytime soon. It's a style that's sort of beyond the usual design trends of stop-motion or CG or, you know, really any other kind of animation. There's just something very kind of satisfying about it. But like when you watch a Pez film, the morphing and the tactile nature and the way that you're experiencing the craftsmanship as it's kind of mutating and taking on new shapes and creating scenarios, building scenes, you know, while you watch, that kind of thing. It's uh, The writing as well is particularly uh, entertaining. I mean, I think the Eagle Man stag was seven or nine minutes or something like that. It managed to, to cram in an entire life and the kind of story into into what most films struggle to get in over an hour and a half. You know, the bio, the full kind of biography of, of, of Peter, the, the main character, was, uh, was, was, you know, beginning, middle and end, very, in a very satisfying way, very kind of economic, but still uh, satisfying way. Uh, m- masterfully, I would say. It's, an, it's a wonderful film. And, and writing something that Mikey Please takes particular pride in, um, Marilyn Miller, the film that we're talking about now, uh, his new film uh, featuring uh, Josie Long. She's kind of got a, a voice which I'd never kind of put in with an animation before, but it fits. It's got a lot more kind of, uh, of the humour element to it, uh, Marilyn Miller. It is very funny, but it's also about an artist struggling with their own identity and when opportunities come knocking you know what's the best course of action to take it's it is a it's a great film also i will say visually as much as we've just been praising the eagle man stag within the first 30 seconds of marilyn miller it just leaves the eagle man stag in the dust it uses similar techniques obviously the polystyrene and stop motion animation but um man it is a it is a cut above it is a a, a real kind of progression for mikey in in the kind of uh in this kind of the direction that he's heading or developing as a director i think definitely it's good that he can deal with subject matter that's very relatable and very important you know to what i expect the greater percentage of his audience is going to be which is going to be people who are creatives themselves while not taking it too seriously while retaining that humor and from what Mm -hmm. i the clip i saw of marilyn miller which i haven't seen the whole film yet it seemed to me to be slightly more accessible in terms of how it was written, the actual sort of narration of it. Is that an accurate assessment from the trailer that maybe it's written in a way that's perhaps more immediately kind of uh, gets its hooks into you as an audience member? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Like you say, it is um, the film addresses creativity and artistry, but it does with with a kind of a wider appeal, I would say. 
The Eagle Man Stag was a very uh, thoughtful film and, and, and very well put together, but Marilyn Miller is a bit more, whilst it's not commercial, it's still accessible. Excellent. And how refreshing also to see a filmmaker go in that direction to, on one hand, develop a visual style that is a clear progression from the film we made before, but as far as the story goes, becomes less indulgent has more consideration to an audience, has more of a sense of how to write to entertain and engage audiences. Mm -hmm. So often you get a promising filmmaker who will have a really good visual style and they'll do a really good student film or a good first professional film. And then their next film, it's more sort of, I don't know, personal to them. They have more kind of uh, leeway as far as doing exactly what they want to do without that filter. And if someone is gifted in a way that they just sort of know how to write films that people are just going to love, then that's obviously fine. But I find that oftentimes people don't kind of have that and they that completely clear, undiluted personal vision without any feedback, without any kind of um, help along the way can actually be quite hard to watch. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there are quite prominent people who work in mainstream animation, animation for television and films. You see what they do with certain restrictions, and then you see what they do completely unhindered. And actually, sometimes the restrictions help them creatively. It helps give them a proper structure to a story. It helps give them proper structure to the jokes they're trying to tell, or give more poignancy to the poignant moments they're trying to convey. So, all of this is a kind of roundabout way of saying, you know, It's good that this is a guy who clearly doesn't need that extra sort of... Who clearly doesn't need those extra sort of hands coming in and pointing him in the right direction. He has an idea of the right direction to go in and he's, he's, you know, using his own initiative and his own common sense. He's also using a lot more of his own voice, I would say, as well. It's very kind of comfortably Mikey Please, I would say. You know, having met him a few times and, and obviously done the interview and talked to him at festivals and things, it is more kind of along his kind of his using his own humour. It's more him. Mm-hmm. So this is all leading somewhere. We've obviously got an interview with uh, Mikey. Please, the interview was conducted um, last year, last August. Uh, he just won the McLaren Award, which is in its twenty fifth year this year, with um, you know Norm McLaren's centenary as well. So lots of anniversaries going on there. But he just won the twenty fourth. And he was presented the award by Richard Williams. So we talk a little bit about that, but obviously more about the film, which had just been released at that point. So, yeah, here's uh, our interview with uh, Mikey, please. So, Mikey, please, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. We're here to ask a few questions about Marilyn Miller, your new short film. But let's start with The Eagle Man Stag, your last film, which was met with great acclaim. As somebody fresh out of the Royal College of Arts, what was that experience like? How did you find the experience of being thrust into the world and, and have everyone admiring the film? Uh, yeah, it was, it was really, it was an amazing, amazing moment. Um, I mean, I, I've been making, you know, things for a long time before that. You know, I'd been uh, making loads of, like, music videos and short commercials and things like that, but I hadn't kind of, yeah, had that experience of making something that I actually quite enjoyed watching. So as, as as much as like the really kind of amazing response it got, it was also quite uh, quite amazing for me to sort of be able to look at something and not hurt inside, <laughs> not want to punch my own face in while watching it. So um so so that 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 was a like a nice turning point. You know, I was like, ah, oh, you know what, actually, 
like doing this and I'm not terrible at it. So I'll carry on. <laughs> yeah. What part of the, that journey surprised you the most? And was there anything about the whole kind of visiting festivals with the film and presenting it to people hmm. that you weren't expecting that was surprising, maybe? Yeah, it was, it was a really incredible year following its release, you know, just that kind of festival circuit trail. What was surprising about it? I, it was always quite amusing hearing what other people understood from the film. You know, I've heard, like, so many... I mean, and, and they're all correct, you know, so many, like, interpretations of, like, what's happening. Um, and obviously, like, I have a very particular, like, intention for the actual sort of plot and events. But but it was really wonderful, yes, talking to people afterwards and being like, you know, even people who didn't really speak English, you know, or, or like, understand the, the, the dialogue still kind of understood something from the film you know there's I mean I think that's that's true with all film but it was interesting doing that circuit and like meeting people from loads of places over the world and everyone has a slightly different take on it and uh, yeah were many of them wrong or they were all wrong Steve no one's got it yet (laughs) (laughs) no 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 no. I mean I I think everyone's along the right track but it's um, yeah it, it, it certainly means something very particular to me and then um, it's kind of nice people seeing it what they what they want I suppose yeah the technique used in both the Eagle Man Stag and Marilyn Miller and some other projects that you worked on mm. uh, they're fascinating to watch and some people are convinced that CG's used or you know kind of you know, yeah can you tell us how much of the process is in camera and you know how do you okay. put a puppet together well I'm, I mean it's it, it varies obviously you know like every Every product is different, but I mean these these particular two short films, um, Eagleman was like all in camera, pretty much. There's a few shots where there's some like facial compositing. Oh, I don't want to admit that. Yeah, I'll admit that. That's fine. I mean, and uh, and that. So so yeah, all all in camera, like model animation, really like the simplest simplest thing you possibly do. And that was like through. I mean, it was through you know wanting a particular kind of aesthetic and process but but also just like straight up necessity I was just like you know don't have time don't have time to do you know a bunch of post-production it was kind of shooting up to the day um on on Marilyn it's a bit it's it's slightly different I mean most of it I mean everything is based on an in-camera shot so there's nothing in there that's totally fabricated but there are there there are, there are elements there's probably there's probably more of a mixed media but there's nothing completely cg like everything's solid puppets as i'll show you later yes yeah yeah they're all it's all you know just real crafted stuff nice yeah we love stuff yeah um the story of uh, of marilyn uh, miller actually started off uh, life as Martin mm, Miller had a why sexy the, change. Yeah, why the why the sexy change? Well, <laughs> as we were discussing earlier, you know, George Clooney he couldn't do the voiceover, so we had promised him, you know, if he couldn't do it, then no one would do it. So it was a contractual thing that we had to change it to a woman, right. so that Clooney wouldn't get his his pants in a. No, that's not that's not the reason. No, um. Yeah, so so for a long a long time during the development, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was a guy, 
Um, and I think it was when I began to storyboard it all out and sort of look at some of the images and the story as a whole. I, two things, like, one, I just didn't really like the guy and I was like, why don't I like him? Like, you know, it's, it's really important. And um, and also I just felt like it was there were so many, too many cliches. You know, this, this image of, like, a creator and a guy, like, strutting around and, like, someone having sort of existential angst, you know. it's There was just too many knee-jerk things. And I think also, uh, I mean, at the time I've been watching um, Girls, HBO's Girls, do you know this series? Yeah, Lena yeah. Dunham. And, um, and also, you know, really big fan of, of J.C. Long's work, who I think has a lot of sort of um, in common there. And, uh, and, and just... Uh, seeing that sort of I don't know powerful female lead that could also be the buffoon you know quite often like the idea of like an affirmative female lead is someone who's like a strong independent woman but I'm like actually that's sort of there's something really patronising about that too like so often you know female roles aren't funny you know and you're like why is that why do why females always portrayed as like the straight person in a comedy setup, it's really stupid because, like, all my female friends are, like, really funny. And, like, why? And they're really stupid, too. <laughs> you know, they're just, like, they make fools out of themselves as much as everyone else. Like, so I, I thought there was just something... And it was something I, I hadn't, you know, for one reason or another, you know, hadn't had a, a funny female lead in my other films, so I wanted to do it. And yeah. uh, and as soon as I, I mean, I just tried it out in the storyboard stage. Like, would this work? And it totally did. And I was like, I'm, I absolutely feel more endeared to this person. Yeah. Um, in that way. So simple things, but yeah. Yeah. Well, the person's brought to life, like you say, by um, comedian Josie Long. Mm. Um, she voices uh, Marilyn. Uh, so. Uh, why was she chosen, and sort of what did she bring to the whole yeah. thing? Well, yeah, I think for that for that reason too. Like she, um, you know, she's really funny. Like a really, there's something about Josie's voice that you know you just immediately like her. You know, and I've, I've been I've been to see her so many times over over the years, and. Um, I don't know. She's just really likable. She's really likable. Yeah. She's incredibly funny. She's very intelligent. Uh, I think you know. There's there's all these sort of wonderful things about her that uh, I wanted. I wanted for my <laughs> my my character Marilyn. Um, so yeah, and she she was lovely to work with. She's yeah. great. She got all that across. Everything across that you wanted. She yeah. To... Yeah. Did you know she's yeah she's great. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the team that you work with on the short and uh, who was instrumental didn't, in getting the short made? Yeah, didn't have a team. No, I literally did everything. Everything myself. Yeah. No, no, I didn't. I, I, there were loads, loads of people who worked on the short. Um, principally Dan O'Jari over there. Hey, Dan. Hello. There he is. <laughs> so um, most the, the majority of the time was uh, just Dan O'Jari and, and I in a studio down at Clapham Road. Um, so we shot down in Clapham Road Studios, with the amazing, amazing facilities and people there. Um, so we had all of their kind of expertise to 
to draw on and their support. Um, and and then we had um, model makers and we had, uh, yeah, other sort of production people. We had a girl called Jen Newman who was with us for the latter half. Um, and then and then the production team at Blink and at Hornet as well. So those guys kind of handled a lot of the post-production. Um, so there's a team out in out in New York who handled uh, did basically all of the sort of facial animation um, and did a kind of amazing amazing job. Mm-hmm. So so yes, yeah, so there was a huge team. There was a really big team yeah. involved, and yeah. Too long really, to name them really all. good. Too too many to name them all, but yeah, um, yeah. I did. Uh, I did like the music in the film. I thought the music was. Oh yeah, really, really pleased with the music. Yes, yeah. yeah, so that, that that was my my brother um, Ben Addict Please, who worked with two other composers, uh, Beth Porter and Jules Scott. Um, so they yeah, so he, we kind of went full on all that, especially with uh, the. The latter piece, the, the piece of music at the end. So Ben, my brother, um, has worked for a long time as a documentary filmmaker out in uh, Tanzania and Kenya. And so he, when he was going out there, I was like, "Bro, can you please try and record, <laughs> record a choir?" And so we translated. So he translated this poem, like this really stupid, like joke poem, you know, which is kind of like the message of the film. Um, translated it in Swahili and then got a yeah, Swahili choir to sing this. That's right at the end. You've got like a sort of uh, the. Uh, Don't give it away. It, oh, it, oh, oh, and the subtitles. The yeah, subtitles. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wondered if I was giving away too much. No, 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 it is no. subtitled, so it's yeah, there so for you do. Enjoy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get the real, the real thing. Yeah, he did um, a completely different job to what he did in Eagle Man Stag. It's quite sort of versatile. Sort of yeah, yeah, and and well, he worked with a sound designer, um, Adam JB. Uh, who is from a band called Zen Death Squad, and uh, yeah, so he he did all the sound design and did like this kind of incredible soundscape. Like if you watch the film just on just with the sound design, it's still like really rich and mm. uh, yeah, powerful stuff. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It must have made the editing process all the sweeter without having to listen to it all again. Yeah. Over and over again. Well, yeah. it's nice, you know, like putting sound and sound effects and music on. In, until that moment, everything's like a ghost, you know. It's just this sort of exterior shell. But then, when you got all the sound design and the music, it's suddenly everything, you know, when things fall over, they like have weight and they make a noise, and everything has texture and they rub up against each other. So mm. that sound design moment's like the best because suddenly it's like everything's filled in, you know. It's like putting meat on the bones. Nice. Yeah, it's good. So, uh, so when you completed uh, uh, Marilyn Miller. It was entered straight into the Edinburgh International Film Festival, mm. uh, where it picked up uh, the prestigious uh, McLaren Award, and it yeah. was presented to you by uh, Mr. Rich Williams. So, uh, what did he think of the film? Ah, oh, that was that was pretty wonderful. That was mm. a wonderful life life moment. Um, uh, yeah, he he said he really enjoyed it. <laughs> he thought Norman would have liked it, Norman McLaren, mm. which is a uh, pretty high praise. Um, so just after after when I sort of got to sit next to him afterwards and uh, and yeah I got to tell him that you know because Dan Ojari and, and I went to Wimbledon College of Art where they don't have an animation course so what we did have 
was Richard Williams' book. And so you basically kind of just have learned, you know, how to animate through through his book. So it was nice to kind of, yeah, have that. It, it was a lot like a full circle sort of thing, you nice. know, to yeah. have him actually, yeah. I'm sure there's people that. who can appreciate that because I myself with the book. Always yeah, in my right. In the book, you know, he's, he's it's a, an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, it's it is the sort of yeah, it's like the Bible. Yeah, the freaking Bible. Anyway, and so it was. So it was great. So, like I say, a great life experience meeting him. Yeah, it was really nice, and you know, got to hang out with him the next day. I took a three D scan of his head, just still got. I have a lot of fun with that head. <laughs> it's like I own a piece of him now. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, yeah, may yeah, really fascinating, intelligent man. Um, so what's what is what is your relationship with the with the medium of animation? I mean, do you find it an endearing <laughs> method of storytelling? <laughs> and uh, are you automatically attracted to it? Would you do live action? Would you sort of try anything else to tell stories? Uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I I write quite a lot, um, probably more than I animate, you know, and so especially in terms of. Yeah, you know, I spend probably more time writing than, than animating, but um, man, animation's the best, isn't it? <laughs> you can do everything. So. You can do everything in animation. No, I th- um, yeah, it's a sort of Frankenstein monster of every other art form. You know, you can take a piece of music, you know, music and sculpture and photography and drawing and all these things and smoosh them together into animation it literally is the best form of art ever <laughs> I think it is I think it is it's um, yeah no it's it's great but it's really hard so I don't know if I like doing it <laughs> you, you said, uh, in, you, you it said in, your, in your last interview that we had about about writing about mm. how the RCA sort of uh, yeah, yeah. you project that is, is writing your favourite part then is that the well it's like the lowest production value isn't it I mean you can have a finished thing really quickly so in terms of like seeing if something works yeah it's just really satisfying it's really nice you know you can have something finished and complete instantaneously which is great mm-hmm. um, and and yeah it's, it's, it's obviously crazily important like for the last six months you know I've been straight straight writing like hardly any animation at all so I actually finished Marilyn in February, I think. Um, but yeah, the rest of the time has been just straight writing. And it, yeah, really satisfying too. The whole different sort of set of challenges and annoying okay. <laughs> annoying things to get your head around. Spelling, really bad at spelling. That's the worst bit. It's the it? worst, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. And I'm supposed to be a writer. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's July now. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending when this this uh, podcast goes out, mm-hmm. what's next uh, for Marilyn and what's next oh, wow. for Mikey? Well, been a bit bad about planning Marilyn's life. Um, actually, haven't entered it into any other festivals yet. Uh, there's a couple sort of talking to, but I won't say. But anyway, but they're but then they're not for a while off, so. Still, sort of figuring out what we can do with it, whether we're going to sort of wait and have it sort of full, full circuit release, you know, when these next kind of couple of things pop up. 
Um, but for the moment, yeah, I mean, for my, my, my sort of my full time thing is uh, Zero Greg, which is this feature film that's been in development for a while, but it's kind of just been hopping, hopping the hurdles of it, um, and yeah, working with a sort of full, full draft revisions now and getting into the visual development side of it. So that's that's really exciting. That's my favourite thing. <laughs> that's like been my, my baby for a while. So um, so yeah, that's 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 kind of what the the immediate future, at least, holds for me, which nice. is nice. Yeah, you couldn't tell us anything about that. Um, Two two years ago, I don't suppose you can tell us anything about that now. Mm, no, <laughs> it's I, 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 you can't blame me for trying. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, yeah, it would you know that it would be dissatisfying for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's yeah, there's nothing really to say. Sorry, Steve. Sorry. Something to look forward to. Let's Something to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, Mike, thank you very much for talking to Swiggly. Steve, thank you. So that was Steve talking to Mikey Please last year, shortly after his McLaren Award win. Uh, the film Marilyn Miller recently won the British Animation Award. Definitely one to look out for. You never use that one anymore. Don't I? I don't know. <laughs> I'll try and find do sing it again. Do 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 doo 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 the one with the doo 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 at the end. Okay, let's see if I can find that one. No. That's the one. That's number five, so I'll make sure I'll put that in this episode. If you're doing requests. Ben, what do you know of Hallis and Bachelor? Well, I uh, I know that they're kind of legends, really, aren't they? They're uh, mm-hmm. they pretty much laid the groundwork for the. Uh, they were a big part of the British animation scene, yes. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, if you were probably to ask people who the biggest and longest running animation uh, studio in the UK ever was, they'd probably say Ardman straight away. But uh, the Hallis and Bachelor. Studio lasted from 1935 right the way up to John Hallis's death in, I think, about 1995. So quite the era there. And whilst the films weren't as well known or as or, or, or being released at the at quite the pace that um, Ardman films get released, they've still got quite a a legacy. Well, some of them are kind of classics, really, aren't they? Like the, I mean, I, Absolutely. The, the film that they're always associated with would be the feature film Animal Farm, mm. which I'm sure you've seen. That was part of my sort of George Orwell secondary school phase of, of you know, that was a, a favourite of mine. That and the uh, the John Hurt version of 1984. He didn't direct it, but he was mm. in it. Um, yeah, those are two particularly good adaptations of books, which is such a rare thing. But Animal Farm, the as an animated feature... There was a quality to it. I mean, it was very different, but there was a quality to it that I, I kind of associated a little bit with, like, the same feeling I got from stuff like Watership Down. So many components of it have this kind of children's movie aesthetic, but it's saying something way more significant. And granted, that was down to the source material more than anything else, but it was animated very well. It was a very sort of competently you know, produced piece of work. 
I mean, were there other feature films that they were particularly well known for? Not that they were well known for. Um, Animal Farm is the first, I would say, commercial uh, British animated feature film. There was also they also produced feature films, but they were more training films in the in the Second World War, which were like um, for the navy and, and and military and things like that. Um, but yeah, the, the the short films are probably what they're best known for. I mean, Automania two thousand. The, the film about the cars you've seen with the, the self-producing car and it's all kind of cartoon modern. Mm. and Have you seen it? Yeah. yeah. Um, that was the first um, British film to be nominated for an Oscar, I believe. So they've been hitting these landmarks as well as, um, as, well as kind of producing a, a high-quality portfolio of, of wonderful animated films. The reason we're actually talking about Alison Bachelet is because it's uh, 2014, which is 100 years since Joy Bachelet was born. So this year marks the centenary of, uh, of her birth. She was a, an animation director in a time where she would have most likely been called a female director. Right. Which the term kind of would make somebody wince today, I would, I would hope. It was a different time. She was uh, a spectacularly talented draftsperson uh, and wonderful animator, director, scriptwriter. Um, you know, she had the full kind of package. She really did the, the legwork behind the studio whilst her husband, uh, John Hallis, was the kind of the figurehead, to, uh, to quote another one of their films. Joy was, was behind the scenes really putting in the uh, the hard work and the and the artistry. John Hallis wasn't an animator himself as such, but he was known for picking great styles and great directors and putting together uh, classic films. Uh, he obviously worked with uh, the likes of Bob Godfrey and Harold Whittaker did an awful lot of work with them as well, which was uh, obviously great stuff. But there was no, none more in John Hallis's roster of fantastic directors than his, than his wife, who was there all along. It is great that these kind that these things can be celebrated, um, and with it being the centenary of a birth, you know, there's no better time. And I think that Vivian Hallis, well, she wrote the book on uh, on the subject, I guess, on uh, Hallis and Bachelor and the history of their work. Yes, she wrote the the Hallis and Bachelor cartoons and animated history with uh, Professor Paul Wells, and she's come back to write alongside others, including Paul Wells, um, a moving image which is uh, a tribute to her, her late mother. Uh, you've also got the likes of uh, Jez Stewart, Jim Walker, Brian Sibley, Claire Kitson. And each, each writer kind of gives a different angle of this, uh, this tremendous talented woman's uh, life. And it is, uh, it, it is a great book and, and, and fabulously illustrated, as you'd expect from such a, a prolific um, talent. So the, the celebrations for Joy Bachelor um, continue uh, on the 13th of April, for those interested, at the Barbican um, at Cinema 2 uh, from 4pm till 6pm. Uh, there's going to be a screen talk where her work will be kind of celebrated and discussed more. For more details on that, you can go on the Barbican website or the events page on Squiggly and just uh, look for the 13th of April. And uh, yeah, you better find it there. It's also interesting to see that, that some of the films are going to be played at Canary Wharf Tube Station, which is quite interesting, I think. The actual tube station? At the actual tube station, so commuters can sort of, they're waiting for their tram 
sorry, their train. Um, and there'll be the, the films projected on the walls, I presume. Huh. That's quite an interesting way for, for the public to discover films or to, you know, enjoy films. So you got to chat to Vivian Hellas, I gather. I did, yes. Uh, find out a little bit more about the uh, the life and work of uh, Joy Batchelor. A little bit about how Vivian got involved in in maintaining the Hallison Batchelor collection, the the archive there, and uh, yeah, find out more about this uh, this woman's career, life, and uh, and much much more. People have obviously during history have said that there's no. You know, there's no women animators, but here she is. She's She's been there all along. She put- was the little tip of the iceberg because most of her work was fairly unseen and she didn't push herself forward, which I'd say is quite typical of a lot of animators. If you take, I mean, not, not a severe case as, say, Harold Whitaker, who worked for Harris and Bachelor all those years, and he was happy just... Being an animator, that's what he loved. But Joy was a bit more than that, because if anyone uh, reads the book, they'll see, you know, that she she didn't just do drawing, design, animation, uh, script writing, uh, direction and production, but she also did quite a lot of the admin work and and organising the studio and... uh, for instance, when the studio was sold to Time Tease Television at one point, um, I think John was off doing something glorious for ASIFA, you know, the, um, the um, Association of International Animation. She was left dealing with all this business side of it. Jez discovered that, Jez, Jez um, Stewart at the BFI, you know, who, who's been... Um, cataloguing and um, finding out all sorts of really interesting things in the archive because um, after being rather alone all these years doing Harrison Bachelor archive work, it's all in the BFI now, well, in the National Archive, and he's been doing lots of research, which is really nice because it means I've got someone who is as interested in it as I am. How did you become involved maintaining the, the Harrison Bachelor legacy? Where did that start for you? Well, it was a bit like Mount Everest. It was there. I didn't ever have any intention of having anything to do with it, to tell you the truth. I was a graphic designer, and to get away from my parents, I landed up working in Paris. And um, I lived there, what, for 23 years as a designer. But then when my dad got ill, he sort of started trying to get me involved. When, in fact, when Joy died... He started off by saying, do you mind if I put your name as a director on the letterhead because it'll look good now Joy's not here. So I said, oh, all right, fine, no problem. Uh, And then that gradually became, could I do this and could I do that? And um, I very slowly got wound in by the umbilical cord, if you like. And um, at one point he looked me right in the eye as he would, in his Hungarian accent, and said, now you are in the centre of this team. And I thought, bloody hell. (laughs) And uh, so after he died, he made me executor of his will. And um, there was all this stuff, loads and loads, cans of film and, and cells and drawings and books and countless awards and, and all kinds of 
bits and pieces and miscellaneous stuff. So um, I came back to England and uh, thought, oh, this, this will be good. I'll get money from the distribution. Oh, goody. Well, that wasn't good either because I was actually left with the litigation by my dear father because he sort of sold Animal Farm twice to people. And, um, I mean, it wasn't really his fault. So that took four years to fight and to get it to go away, which it did in the end because, well, it wasn't Alice and Bachelor's fault. It was people being greedy, basically. So that was a baptism by fire, and um, by then I was sort of involved. And uh, we decided to come back to England and that I would tidy up the mess. And um, it's, it has been fascinating. I have to say that I've enjoyed it mostly, apart from the legal stuff and the paperwork. I'm not very mad about that. But all the research is good fun. And so that's how I changed from being a graphic designer in Paris to uh, looking after the archive, firstly in London and um, uh, now in Lewis. And from the uh, the Hallison Bachelor collection, a few things have, have, have propped up in recent years. The uh, Hallison Bachelor cartoons, the animated history written by yourself and uh, uh, Professor Paul Wells. Oh, yes. Well, Paul Wells has been so helpful. I kind of asked him for years and years if he'd help. And eventually he was ready and he helped. And he, without him, I couldn't have done that book because he edited it. But there again, there are lots of contributors, and it's it's really a, a great book, I think, because it it brings together the points of view of different animators, of different um, people that worked with my parents, and it hopefully it, it um, does justice to the people who actually worked in the studio, who a bit like Joyce sometimes got ever so slightly overlooked. This new book that we're talking about now, which is, I should say, a moving image, Joy Bachelor, nineteen fourteen to nineteen ninety one, features illustrations, uh, film cells, pictures, um, sketches from the Hallison Bachelor collection. Most of the stuff actually comes from my personal collection uh, because she was an illustrator uh, just before and just after the war when when they couldn't get film work at some points. Um, She illustrated a lot of cookery books, and Jim Walker's written a whole section about her illustrations. Um, And so you can see all the sorts of things she did right from art school. I mean, she could have been really a very fine illustrator, but she got bitten by the animation bug and really never looked back. And then after she had me and my brother, Uh, It was more difficult for her to get into the studio all the time, although she did. I have to say that um, if if you look in her filmography, which is in the book and taken from many different sources, and in the filmography you can see that she worked on really hundreds of films and that in the beginning, you know, she animated and did everything, but that after she had children she tended to focus more on script writing and direction and production and and some art direction. So there is that whole debate in there about women and animation. And in a way, I'd rather her just be a filmmaker rather than this big woman title. Mm -hmm. Because to my mind, and in hers idea too, 
is that there was no difference between men and women. But sadly, of course, both she and I are wrong, and there is a big difference in the way they're treated. And certainly my parents, especially in the beginning, it was 50-50. I mean, she went out and got the work, mainly because he couldn't speak very good English in, in the beginning. And I think she enjoyed that, you know. But then as you get older, your energy runs out. And uh, she, she got quite fed up with it all, I think, because while he was doing the more experimental things, she was doing sort of bread and butter work. Um, who would be making, or I don't know what exactly, um, Tales of Hoffnung. And um, she found herself making Radigal, which she thought was a bit soppy. She did her best. Um, and actually, it's not about film but it, it got slated at the time and it really brought her down after all that work and with a much uh, reduced studio to when they did Animal Farm, for instance. Mm-hmm. And in Animal Farm, they truly were equal. I mean, they were working as a team and I think she remembered that as, as one of the, the finer times. Uh, that in making Automania 2000 that she did the script for which was kind of teamwork as well. And so she enjoyed working in a team uh, and not being isolated. I don't think isolation is good for anyone, especially in in animation or film or anything that's really a collaboration. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you look at a film today, the credits roll on for hours, whereas if you look in their time, there are very few credits. Should we talk about credit? Um, because, as you say in, in the book, if you look at the filmography, uh, you can see that she was um, director and uh, scriptwriter and obviously heavily involved in pre-production right the way through. But, but back in 1930s, 40s, 50s, was, was she put forward as, this is Joy Batchelor, she's the director? Or was, was that a position for your father to kind of, to, to be the face of? Well, in the early days, it was completely equal. Although when you talk to people who worked during the war, they always called it palaces. And they called Joy Batch. And I think they thought she was glamorous um, and, and good, but very shy. Whereas my father was not shy. And I think that's one of the, the big differences is that um, he was the one that jumped up and down and was more dynamic. I mean, by about the 70s, he was a bit of a dinosaur, but in the early days, you know, they were cutting edge at the time. And then, I guess by the 60s, end of the 60s, it began to trail off. So in the beginning, there was a real symbiosis between them, and, and Joy would present things as well as John. When they made Animal Farm, I think she was just as important as he was. But the trouble is that the press were more interested in Joy as a homemaker than a filmmaker. So we had, you know, sort of Woman's Own and all these magazines running about the place, uh, taking photos, and they were saying, Joy Bachelor, the woman Disney, Joy Bachelor, you know, at home in Hampstead. They didn't say... John Hallis, the father, nobody's interested in that. And I often wonder 
well, I know exactly why it is, but I think it's a little bit on the unfair side. Yeah, agreed. I, but uh, in a way, we're now at a point where where hopefully that kind of thing doesn't need to be done anymore. That that page has been turned. The kind of sexist attitude of the past is is kind of it's it's been spent, you know. And now uh, you're a director as opposed to being a woman director. Well, that's good. And, and I think that she saw herself just as a director. Certainly when I've been to other countries, like Hungary, for instance, I did a presentation and I called it A Woman's Place, which is what Claire Kitson has called her essay in this book. And a journalist came up to me afterwards and she said, what do you mean A Woman's Place? Um, in our country, there's no difference. And I said, well, uh, you're jolly lucky then, because... Uh, I don't think that I could get Joy noticed if, if it wasn't for the fact that she was a woman and that it was very rare in those times for women to have that position. They, they could be animators, they could be paint, paint and trace. I remember Bob Godfrey saying to me, that's what animation was, all women. And I seem to remember him saying, you know, that they called it the hen house. Anyway, Claire Kitson's written a whole article about the attitude to women, which is interesting. And Paul Wells as well has written a very interesting piece precisely about women's independence, starting off with the suffragettes and the suffragists, and how, in fact, although freedoms have been won, and it is a lot better, attitudes are still very entrenched. I think even today, do you see many studios with, with big productions where the women are running it? That's a question to you, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would say that the, there isn't a, a great deal of it. I mean, we can mention female directors that are in the kind of the animation spectrum. I wouldn't say that it is really a kind of concern. I'd like to think that we're in a position where, the, where we've kind of moved on from that now. But animation is seen as a boys' club. If somebody was to say, off the top of your head, name me five animators, then you'd probably get five male animators before people then start to think, oh, um, you know, Joanna Quinn, oh, Sidney Bauman, oh, Michaela Pavlatova. You know, that there is certainly the idea that the higher-profile directors or the directors that people think about first are male and animation is seen from that point of view at least, as a bit of a boys' club. Whereas you talked about the hen house earlier on with the, the, the ink and paint or the ink and trace ladies. Um, yeah, it is, it is a, quite a, a contentious issue, I'm sure. Well, there's a, a very amusing uh, film that um, is in the archive at the BFI called Cartoon Land, uh, made by Anson Dyer, which is a sort of documentary on his own studio. And it's incredibly patronising to the women. <laughs> I mean, it's a hoot. It's hilarious. He says, you know, all the women have all been highly trained to do this job. But actually, the people that are um, key animators uh, are, are all the men. And you've got the young um, Harold Whitaker in there with, with other people that then became part of Harrison Bachelor all having the ideas and smoking up a storm. And the women are mixing up the paint and doing the tracing. 
And I think that that, except for that, I think Harrison Bachelor may have been one of the places where it wasn't like that. I think it must be said at this point that the book that we're talking about and Joy Batchelor's profile as an animator isn't just because she was a female animator or director at that time. You've got to look at her actual work to say that it is worthy of merit. It is worthy of uh, celebration in, in this centenary year, as opposed to it just being, oh, she was a woman director. This is true. I mean, the fact is that the whole book is a celebration of her work and her contribution to the studio, and and really to training people and encouraging people. Really, she was the most interesting person to talk to. You know, you really felt that you were on the edge of the meaning of life when you had a chat to her. She was incredibly intelligent and witty, and her her work was really quite special. I mean, she had a fluidity of line that just was quite natural to her. And I'm hoping that this book will show what's left of her work, because obviously there's more things that I can't lay my hands on. But where I can, I've pulled out the work, and it's in the book. And just as a picture book, it's nice to have, you know. There's the story behind it. There's uh, Jez, the archivist, giving an overall picture. Then you've got Claire Kitson, uh, who used to... uh, the programmer for formations at Channel 4, who knows a, a lot about animation and, and um, animators. And then you've got um, myself writing it from my point of view and what it was like knowing Joy and having her as a mother. Uh, you've got Jim Walker talking about her uh, illustrations, so you've got the academic point of view. And then, of course, last but not least, you've got Paul Wells, who really contextualises her contribution. And uh, so I think it's rather a good mix. And the other thing, it's not too long and it's not too heavy, because the thing about the other book we did is it weighs a kilo. (laughs) I thought, never again, I'm not going to do another heavy book. And the other thing that's quite interesting, I think, is because we don't have a DVD in this book, um, at the back, you'll see that there are like film strips that show you the, the overall design of each film. I think at Alice and Bachelor, a lot of people might not realise that they, they managed to, to fit in really interesting design into things that might otherwise be a bit um, heavy on, on information. And there's, there's a film that uh, I didn't even know was there that a collector... Um, let me borrow, called Radio Ructions, which is a bit like train trouble. And the animation in it is absolutely superb. I was sort of blown away. I thought, God, I've never seen this before. And, you know, how long have I been doing this since about 96? And suddenly a new film pops up uh, from about 1946. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's really worth worth having this book. It would be nice to talk perhaps um, if you have any kind of experiences of your mother talking about any particular favourite highlights of her career. Well I guess for her Animal Farm was the big time because they used to go off to New York a lot. I did well it was five when I was five when it started and and, uh, probably nine or ten 
when, when they finished. So that was a big chunk of, of my, uh, my brother's childhood. But for her and for John, it was the first time they'd had a decent budget to make a film, and it was something they cared about. I mean, Orwell was one of their heroes, and it was only really after his death that he became uh, well-known and, and well-regarded. So I think for them, and, and Joy as well, that, that was one of the highlights. Um, another thing that uh, I think she enjoyed was that she did, did a lot of pitches, if you like, for um, new films. They were going to, with de Rochemont films, they were going to do other films after Animal Farm. They were going to do John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And they were going to do A Midsummer's Night's Dream. And she drafted out um, all kinds of pre-production ideas and scripts and, and drawings. Um, these things never came off. Another one that she, she really wanted to do was um, some stories from a very early French writer called uh, Marie de France and their series of, of um, early stories, a, a bit like, um, uh, what do you call it now, Chaucer's Tales, I mean, written by this Marie de France. And uh, my mother absolutely thought this was wonderful and she really wanted to, to make this into a film, but there again, it never happened. And my father, who was a, a wonderful optimist and never better than, you know, more optimistic than when things were going wrong, he always said, look, if, if you get one out of ten projects off the ground, you're doing well. And sadly, my mother wasn't quite such an optimist. But I think probably that's why they, they worked well together, you know, they complemented each other. It sounds like they're quite a team. And obviously, history proves that they did, really, doesn't it? I think so, yes. I mean, that's one of the reasons I bang on about it and, and try and get their work seen, is that I think, well, here's this huge body of work and uh, really a very interesting archive um, and shortly to be even more interesting because um, Harold Whitaker's family are donating his archive uh, to the BFI and... Um, Jez is going down there to, to sort it out. Now that is fabulous archive because Harold had more work of, of um, Alison Bachelor than is already in the archive. So um, within the next however long it takes to catalogue it all, another <laughs> five years if we're all around, uh, it should be fantastic. Absolutely. I'm sure if people want to find out more, there is a show at the Barbican. Yes, yes. Um, what it will be, will be, first of all, there will be um, a new film that Martin Pickles is just finishing now, although I, I showed a rough cut in Lisbon at the Monster Festival, a little sort of mini-documentary introducing Joy and saying who she was, sort of celebratory little resume called Ode to Joy. Um, the title comes, obviously, um, from the Ode to Joy, but it was Brian Sibley's idea. Um, Brian has written a very nice introduction to the book called Ode to Joy. Mm -hmm. And he will be um, chairing uh, a screen talk after the films. But as I was saying, to begin with, there'll be this little introduction 
introducing us to joy. And then there will be um, a series of films, starting off with Dusk in Parade and um, showing some of the early films like um, Six Little Jungle Boys and um, Modern Guide to Health. And then we'll see um, some of her, the films that she was really very implicated in, like Figurehead and um, The Five that nobody's really seen before. Oh, a hilarious one called Dolly Put the Kettle On, which is a four-minute ad for Brooke Bonte. And uh, what else? Oh, there'll be a Charlie film, well, a clip, some of them that are clips, because otherwise it will get rather long. So we're going to see uh, Charlie in New Towns, which is one of the, the nicer Charlie films. Joy was, was very um, heavily involved in the design and, and script writing of that. And that was a precursor of the Charlie Says films. And it was done in, in 1946, 1948, introducing the idea of national security. So we'll be showing that and um, a clip from Rallygore. And then finally, Automania 2000, which is one of the films she loved working on. It's and one of my favourites as well, I would say. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes, it's, um, I think that that and Animal Farm are, are probably the, my favourites. Um, and then there'll be a screen talk um, with um, Brian Sibley, as I said, um, introducing it, and there'll be Claire Kitson and myself, and Jess. So um, it should be interesting, I think it should be fun. And um, hopefully, lots of people will come and see it. We've had quite a bit of interest. I think it'll be a great celebration. But there's there's a bar outside. <laughs> the bar becomes <laughs> you can actually get a drink. And of course, not forgetting that there'll be a book launch. Then there will be other chances, of course, to see this program or one similar. Martin Pickles will be doing an evening of Joy at the London Animation Club and uh, I think that's in the Green Man and that'll be on May the 6th uh, which is the nearest we could get to her birthday then the Hungarian Cultural Centre in in Maiden Lane in Covent Garden will be doing an evening as well and showing some films and we'll have a book signing there as well and um, they'll be coming to the Barbican which is nice, because the Hungarians were always very good to me and have, uh, over the years, invited me to, to do screenings in Ketchikimet and in Budapest. So uh, I think, um, in many ways, John is, is more known in other countries than in this country, which is interesting, mainly because of his work for ASIFA. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's great to see and to hear that um, this kind of ongoing remembrance of uh, one of the the essential animation studios and partnerships of at least uh, uh, UK history and, as you say, um, Hungarian history there. And as you've just said, there's plenty of opportunity for uh, the squiggly audience to get down and to to celebrate as well. So, uh, Vivian Hallis, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today about Alison Bachelor and your mother. Uh, Joy Bachelor's book, um, A Moving Image. Good, thank you. That was Steve talking to Vivian Hallis.
the co-author of Hallison Bachelor and Animated History and the upcoming Joy Bachelor, a moving image. She'll also be presenting Joy Bachelor, a life in animation. Uh, with Claire Kitson, Jess Stewart and Brian Sibley at the Barbican on the 13th of April at 4pm at Barbican Cinema 2. So if that piques your interest, head over there on the 13th of April and find out more. Uh, find out more at hallisandbachelor.co.uk Even better. <laughs> OMG, it's the end of another Squiggly podcast. This ends our two-year anniversary podcasty what's a jigger That's right, exactly. We did actually put together a, a, a two-year anniversary special, if people want to go and listen to that. It's in between two of these quote-unquote normal podcasts, so uh, listen up. But for now, um, we'd like to thank the people involved in this podcast. Yes, thank you to Vivian Hallis of Hallis and Bachelor, and you can find out more again at uh, hallisandbachelor.co.uk that's Bachelor with a T BAA Sting winner Jack David Evans you can find him at moonmanunit42.tumblr.com and Mikey Please the director of Marilyn Miller and the Eagleman Stag his website is mikeyplease.co.uk and Ainsley Henderson of course of uh, White Robot that's whiterobot.co.uk and you can find out more at his personal Tumblr, ainsleyanimation.tumblr.com. The Squiggly Podcast was presented by myself, Steve Henderson, also presented by Ben Mitchell. It is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell, with music by Wes Allard and Ben Mitchell. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. Ben is at Ben L. Mitchell. Squiggly also has a Facebook page, so if you go facebook.com slash squiggly magazine, you can also catch us on Twitter at squiggly. For all the latest news, reviews, interviews, and plenty more podcasts like this, visit squiggly.com. That'll do it. Until the next podcast, goodbye! Goodbye!